As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, our interview with Veep's Julia Louis-Dreyfus and showrunner David Mandel. Uh, they stopped by the office yesterday, and as you'll hear, we pretty much laughed the entire time. It was one of my favorite interviews. Um, but first, we got some big news to get through. Robert Mueller's first words in two years. The political case for impeachment and the Democratic Party's new qualifications for the fall debates. In other pod news... We've released an interview on Wednesday between Dan and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, I'll also be talking with presidential candidate Marianne Williamson on Friday, and you'll be able to hear my conversation with her later that afternoon. Uh, On the newest episode of Pod Save the World, Tommy and Ben explain the recent European Parliament elections, uh, analyze Trump's trip to Japan, and try to understand why he's micromanaging the construction of our aircraft carriers. Weird. And finally... The newest Crooked Media podcast, This Land, premieres this coming Monday, June 3rd. It's a story from Cherokee journalist Rebecca Nagel about two crimes and an imminent Supreme Court decision could come any week now that will determine the fate of five tribes and nearly half the land in Oklahoma. Um, It's an important story about how this country treats Native people and their land. It's riveting. It's beautifully told. So please go subscribe now. Listen to the trailer wherever you get your podcasts, or you can just go to thislandpodcast.com to subscribe. Make sure it's on your phone and ready for Monday morning when the first episode drops. Trust me, uh, you won't want to miss this one, so please go subscribe. I subscribed. Uh, one last thing. You subscribed? Thank you. See, Dan subscribed. I did. I'm very excited. All of, you, all of you should subscribe, too. For next week, we're on the road again. I can't believe we're already on the road again. Um, oh, you my can, God. You can catch Love It or Leave It in Minneapolis and catch Pod Save America in Chicago, Minneapolis, and Des Moines. There's a, still a few tickets left, I believe, at crooked.com slash events. So go uh, go scoop up those tickets and then come say hi. Uh, we'll be flying around the Midwest. One more thing before we get to the news. Sure. Uh, I, w- I watched Running With Beto last night. Mm. Wasn't it great? It was really great. And I would encourage people... Whether they support Beto for president or they support someone else, or they don't know who they're, who they're supporting yet to watch it for a couple of reasons. One, it's just really it's a really good film. But I thought it captured two things really well that I think people will really enjoy. One is the moment in time that was 2018 and people's reaction to what happened in 2016 and and just sort of every regular everyday people getting involved in politics to try to put this country back on the right track. And second, what it's like to be on a campaign. Yeah. The highs, the lows, the exhaustion, the frustration, the excitement, and ultimately, as happens in a lot of campaigns, the heartbreak. I mean, yeah. the, you know, I'm sure this was true for you in watching it, but having worked on campaigns where you pour your entire being into them and then having them come up short is 
uh, it's just so hard, but it, you know, so I thought it was really great and I would encourage people to watch it. And I, I was excited to see your name, name in the credits. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the reason that we, um, wanted to, you know, help co-produce this in the first place is, you know, the, the filmmaker, David Medigliani came to us, you know, when no one really knew who Beto was and, and we barely knew who Beto was and said he was going to make this documentary about people in Texas working for this long shot candidate in the wake of 2016. And it's sort of everything that we talk about here at Crooked Media and Pod Save America about getting involved and joining a campaign and, you know, fighting the odds to fight for what you believe in. And, um, and so, you know, we jumped on then and I think, you know, David told an incredible story about people in Texas um, working for what they believe in. And so, and, and the, you know, the documentary doesn't just follow Beto, it follows uh, three volunteers who worked on the campaign who all have pretty powerful stories on their own. So uh, it's a great film. Uh, definitely check it out on HBO. Okay, let's get to the news. On Wednesday, special counsel Robert Mueller spoke publicly for the first time in two years to announce his retirement and send an implicit but unmistakable message to Congress about impeachment. Do your damn job. Here are some key parts of his statement. Quote, The Russian military launched a concerted attack on our political system. The matters we investigated were of paramount importance. And when a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. And he says that on the question of whether the president obstructed justice himself, quote, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Mueller goes on to say that the reason he didn't make a determination about whether Trump committed a crime is because, quote, under a longstanding department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. The opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. So it would be unfair to potentially accuse somebody of a crime when there can be no court resolution of the actual charge. Mueller also said that he doesn't plan on speaking publicly again because his 400-page report speaks for itself. Dan, why did Mueller, after two years and about a month since the report itself came out, decide to give this statement? What was he trying to achieve here, do you think? I think he was trying to go on vacation. I think, <laughs> I think Memorial Day weekend has passed us. He's probably got a home at the shore. He wanted to get there. I think so. Like I say that that's half in jest, which is I think he is trying to put a coda on this part of his life and move on. And he's basically he is saying, as you point out uh, in the preamble here, that he's saying to Nancy Pelosi and the congressional Democrats, I did my job. It's time for you to do yours. It's up to you. I have put the ball in your court. You can do with it whatever you want. And but let me be very clear. I was giving this to you, which he should have been clearer about in the report or it or not waited nine weeks to speak. But the message is clear. And I think he's he is ready to move on and let the next part of this process take place if that's the path Democrats choose, which we'll discuss why they should do that later. Yeah. And I think what he chose to emphasize in his eight minute statement versus the 400 page report that he wrote is important, too. You know, he says a few times at the beginning, at the end about how you know, Russia, the Russian military, the Russian government launched this concerted, consistent attack on our political system. 
And then he said obstructing the investigation into who's behind that attack um, and who was responsible for it is a very serious misdeed. And basically what he lays out is if Trump had succeeded in obstructing the investigation, if Trump had succeeded in firing Bob Mueller, if, if uh, you know, Don McGahn and all of Trump's subordinates had carried out his wishes to fire Bob Mueller and to make sure that the investigation was only focused on future election interference, which the report says Trump wanted to do, then Bob Mueller never would have been able to indict the Russian hackers, the Russian military, uh, all the people in Russia that were responsible for breaking into the Democratic email system, stealing emails, disseminating stolen emails, and then launching the social media campaign, propaganda campaign to sway the election. And so, you know, Mueller actually doing justice, finding the people responsible for the attack on our political system would not have been possible if the president of the United States had his way and obstructed justice. And I think he's trying to tell us that is a very serious offense. That's right. And the question will be if anyone's going to listen. I I will <laughs> say that Bob Mueller could could have been clearer on this point, and he could have been clearer earlier on this point, right? Because a lot yeah. of people, like, I feel like you and I got the message, but a lot of people didn't. A lot of the reporting is trying to read it like it's some sort of code. And like, what can we divine from this when he's pretty explicit? It's, it is certainly not clear that Democratic leaders took the message. Some of the reporting is unclear, and they're and they're. This is both the benefit and the or this is just the positive and the negative of having someone like Bob Mueller do this investigation. He is theoretically, although only in theory, not in reality, above reproach in the public sphere. Like he he should have been an unimpeachable investigator if we were living in normal political times. He's, yeah. Someone but, with a like a reputation that is so good that the Senate, in a huge bipartisan vote, voted to extend his F- his term as FBI director because he was so good at the job. Someone that Republican, someone that had been appointed by George W. Bush, extended by Obama. Like he is the ultimate nonpartisan figure, even if he is a Republican. But because he is a nonpartisan figure, he was much more subtle, much less explicit, and left some room both in his not the what he wrote in the report but in in the way in which he presented the report and the way in which he allowed institutional figures like Bill Barr to spin his report for him he he left more questions about what he intended than he should have and i think that's still true today despite today's statement yeah i i think that Mueller's biggest mistake was allowing that four-page letter from william barr to be released before his executive summaries and then after that four-page letter was released not responding immediately to correct the record that was his mistake i do think in the statement he delivered yesterday it could not be more clear than the sentence. The opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse the sitting president of wrongdoing. I mean, it screams impeachment. That is the process he's talking about right there. And look, I get the box he's in because of the Justice Department guidelines, right? He feels that it's unfair to accuse a sitting president of a crime if that person cannot then defend themselves using a normal court process. Um, And so therefore he does, that's even why he can't say, Congress, it's your job to impeach him and say the word impeachment deferral, because even that, and, and the Washington Post says this, Mueller's team believe that even that was 
accusing the president of a crime without the president be able, being able to defend himself through a normal court process. So Mueller did everything he could to basically say, here's the evidence that the president committed a crime, but I can't say that the president committed a crime because I can't charge him because he's a sitting president because of this stupid fucking opinion. <laughs> well, I don't know if he thinks it's a stupid fucking opinion, but it is. Um, so you can see the box he's in. So I sort of understand that. I can't understand why either reporters, Democrats in Congress, I can understand why Republicans do this because they are conspiracy theorists and are, you know, willfully ignorant of this. But I can't understand why there are any mixed messages coming from what he said yesterday. It seemed pretty clear to me. Yeah, it's like it. this is the hard part of undoing first impressions. Mm -hmm. Right. If like we would be in an entirely different world, it would probably be weeks into an impeachment inquiry right now. If the way this had played out was he had submitted his letter or his report to Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein and then made this statement on that Friday night or that Sunday, either before or contemporaneous to Bill Barr sending out his letter. And if he had done that, then we would be in a different world. Or if he had let it be known to the public that he disagreed with the characterization of the report in real time instead of waiting weeks to do so. And so I understand the box he's in. And we really should be thankful to Bob Mueller for his service to this country throughout his entire life, including taking on what is a thankless but very important job, even beyond just accountability to President Trump, but finding out, but holding people, holding Russian entities and Russian individuals accountable for what happened in the election. But there is a world in which you have to understand that what is happening is not on the level and adjust your tactics as such. And so like writing a letter to Bill Barr saying you want your summaries out, but then Bill Barr ignoring you and then writing another letter and then just saying, well, I tried is not sufficient if you believe in the work that you did. And it's the same thing goes to the question of his testimony, right? I understand why he doesn't want to testify, but that is not how the world works. And if you truly believe that this is really important, that the work you did was important. It should stand on itself and the public and the Congress should make a decision based on the work itself, not on the propagandization of the work by Trump, Bill Barr and Fox news. Then you got to speak for that work yourself. And there's not a substitute for that. That is appropriate in this day and age. What do you think Democrats should do about his reluctance to testify? How much does his testimony matter at this point? I think what we know from yesterday is his testimony matters a lot. Mm-hmm. If he just sat in a chair and read all 400 pages of the report out loud, I think it would it would be very dramatic and important. Does it mean it shifts all of the public opinion in the favor of impeachment? No, not necessarily. But a person is a better messenger than a PDF. And yeah. so having him do that would be good. I think we have to set expectations in our in our own minds as consumers and the Congress people do in theirs that Bob Mueller is not Jim Comey. He is not going to preen for the cameras. He's not going to try to be dramatic. He's not. He is going to be as boring as he possibly can. But as I think, as we saw from yesterday, that just there's so much confusion around this. There's so much bullshit that just saying the words out loud in a mostly clear way helps cut through that bullshit. So I think he will be getting a subpoena one way or the other. And Adam Schiff basically, as I, I, read, I heard yesterday, said, great, I look forward to hearing from Bob Mueller soon. So I think they're going to uh, make him come testify in some way, shape, or form. I think the more nonpartisan and boring Bob Mueller is during his testimony, the more politically effective it will be 
frankly. I mean, yeah, I think I, I think agree. that I think that James Comey was less politically effective because he decided to, you know, go after Trump, talk about his fucking tanning goggles, all that bullshit. I mean, you know, he he did sound in a way like he had joined the resistance at some point. And Bob Mueller being nonpartisan and just reading or reiterating the conclusions from his report in front of Congress. Yeah. Look what look what an eight minute statement did yesterday. This is also I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but. It's another argument for the um, power of impeachment hearings in an age of television and media where, you know, people aren't reading a 400 page report. But when something is televised live for weeks at a time and it's all over cable and it's all over Twitter and it's all the news and information that most Americans are consuming, it has a much, much bigger impact on people than any kind of report that Bob Mueller could release. And I think Democrats are probably underestimating the power of televised hearings that lay out for the American people exactly what misdeeds and crimes the president committed. Yeah, and they shouldn't be because the original approach that the Democratic leadership in the Congress proposed was as a either a substitute for or a preamble to impeachment would be a series of very high profile televised hearings with star witnesses to pull on the threads of the Mueller report um, and other associated Trump crimes and corruption. So like that was the plan they wanted Don McGahn in front of the Senate or the house judiciary committee, Bob Mueller in front of the house judiciary committee, um, Donald Trump Jr. in front of the House Intelligence. Like, that was the plan. Yep. But that is not that plan has not worked out for a host of reasons that also leads you to the path of impeachment. Yep. Uh, so another reason we know that Mueller's statement was a big deal is that Trump dropped his uh, total exoneration bit and tweeted immediately after the statement, quote, there was insufficient evidence and therefore in our country a person is innocent. The case is closed. Thank you. <laughs> um and then today, <laughs> waking up to this was fun. Today he tweeted, I had nothing to do with Russia helping me get elected. <laughs> Whoops. And then he goes out to uh, the White House South Lawn uh, and he gives a little impromptu press conference to reporters. And uh, I believe we have a clip of that that we're going to play right now. To me, it's a dirty word, the word impeach. It's a dirty, filthy disgusting word and it had nothing to do with me so i don't think so because there was no crime you know it's high crimes and not with or or it's high crimes and misdemeanors <laughs> there was no high crime and there was no misdemeanor so how do you impeach based on that and it came out that there was nothing to do with russia the whole thing is a scam it's one of it's a giant presidential harassment and honestly I hope it goes down as one of my greatest achievements because I've exposed corruption. I've exposed corruption like nobody knew existed. Can I just say something? There's obviously a lot of problems with that statement, but um, maybe the biggest is that under Trump's definition of what constitutes an impeachable offense, you can commit a high crime, but if you don't also commit a misdemeanor, you're off the hook. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much to unpack there. Um, first, the 
our anti-immigrant America first president would undoubtedly fail the citizenship test. Undoubtedly. Like just no concept of how anything within our government works, which is which is scary because he's in charge of the government. He also is just the king of the self-own. <laughs> he's like in the where you mentioned previous, where he, in an attempt to defend himself, finally admits that Russia helped him win. Here he says he exposed a lot of corruption, which is true. It's just his corruption. <laughs> yeah, his his obstruction did succeed in exposing his own corruption. Um, so that's that's a big win for him. No, I mean, but does that does that statement sound like the statement of someone who is goading Democrats into impeachment because he thinks it will be politically beneficial for him? No, <laughs> that has been one of, I think, the worst arguments against impeachment is that it's what Trump wants. Yeah, it is. Doesn't seem like it's there what he is wants. a very real debate about what is good, good or bad politically. And we yes. will have that. But just if you know anything about Trump, the idea that he would he can't even fathom the idea that he is one of a tiny handful of presidents who won the Electoral College and lost the popular vote. He has had to construct an X-Files style conspiracy to justify that black mark on his presidential record. So imagine how he would act if he were to become one of three presidents who had to wear the scarlet eye of impeachment. Like there's no way he wants that. Like he, in his mind, like the constant, so much of Trump's behavior is trying to navigate the dissonance between the reality of Trump with like of who he is, how bad a president he is, how dumb he is, what a poor imitation of his own father he is, and the reality in his own mind that he is about to be have his head carved into Mount Rushmore. And whenever he like he falls into the area between those and that dissonance comes through is when he acts like a lunatic. And so impeachment is most certainly something that he would dread because it is it makes it harder to abide the fantasy that he is somehow not a giant fucking loser. He would be the only president in history to have won the presidency while losing the popular vote and getting impeached and, by his own admission, having a foreign government help him get elected in the first place. <laughs> that is a very specific category. I mean, it is. That is like that is very much like what is in vogue in sports statistics now when they're like, Steph Curry is the first player under 6-4 to average 28 points, 5 rebounds and 3 steals. Like it's like yes, he would be the one president to do that. Well, it also goes to the core of what he cares about, which is the legitimacy of his presidency. Because if you look if then you look at his presidency and say, "Okay, well, the guy won without winning the popular vote. He he won because a foreign government helped him get elected and then he got impeached." That doesn't make him feel very good about uh, about his presidency. He also, by the way, said it wasn't part of that clip, but he said of impeachment, the courts will never allow it. Right. <laughs> hey, buddy, courts, yeah. they do not have anything to do with it. I'm sorry, except for the Th fact that Josh that is a little bit of him like saying the quiet part out loud, which is. Like he knows and McConnell knows, the Republican Party knows, so they have been stacking the courts in his favor. And he's basically looking down Pennsylvania Avenue at the Supreme Court. And in his head, he knows, I put Brett Kavanaugh on there and Neil Gorsuch and Mitch McConnell stole that seat from Obama. So 
Like, I have immunity by court theft. Yeah, what's and the problem? So I think he really does think that. That's just why he's so fucking outraged when all of his unconstitutional illegal acts uh, get overturned in court. Because he's like, I I put all my guy, my judges, right? He calls them his judges. I put my judges on the court, and why aren't I getting rulings that are in my favor? And so I do think he thinks the courts will protect him because he has stacked the courts. Just wait till John Roberts, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, presides over the uh, trial in the Senate and Trump starts saying like, why is crooked John Roberts there? Why isn't Brett Kavanaugh presiding over the thing? <laughs> he's, he's not, he's, he doesn't get how any of this works. <laughs> as a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. All right, so let's talk about the Democrats and what they should do now. Um... Just about all the major presidential candidates put out statements supportive of impeachment to various degrees. Uh, yesterday, two more House Democratic chairmen announced their support for impeachment, bringing the pro-impeachment vote in the House to around 40, 41, 42 Democrats uh, and one Republican, Justin Amash. That still leaves approximately 200 or so Democrats who are either opposed or undecided including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and most of her top leadership. On Wednesday, Pelosi said, quote, nothing is off the table, but we do want to make such a compelling case, such an ironclad case that even the Republican Senate will be convinced. We want to do what gets results. Um, Dan, what kind of pressure does Mueller's statement yesterday put on Pelosi? How does this affect her decision? And what do you think of her reasoning yesterday? It puts more pressure on. I think the thing that probably puts the most pressure is Justin Amash, a Republican congressman facing a primary challenge, not only being essentially the most vocal advocate for impeachment in the House, 
going to going to a town hall in his Republican district and standing up and getting a standing ovation for making that case. I think that puts the most pressure on like we can't live in a world where Republican, even if it's one, but one Republican congressman is showing more courage of their convictions than Democrats in this situation. I think that puts a lot of pressure on. And there's just I just have this sense that the momentum is all on the side of the pro of the Democrats who want to hold Trump accountable by opening an impeachment inquiry. Because just think of like the arguments they have. They have the clear moral argument. They have the clear constitutional argument. They have the better argument around legal strategy in the sense that Trump is stiff arming everything that they want to do and that their hand in getting access to those documents and those witnesses is strengthened by an impeachment inquiry. And the argument on the other side is essentially Trump committed impeachable offenses, but we're not going to do impeachment because politics or something. And that is just not that's not a compelling argument. You're not exciting anyone with that. You're not you're not it's not a logically it's just, coherent it's very argument. hard <laughs> to win that argument over the long term because there's no and it's just it's not a great argument and it is exacerbated by the fact that people are very skeptical for good reason about members of the democratic establishment telling the activists to check their passion because of political strategy right it's just we have been down the road we now believe for better or worse, that no one knows anything. And so why would you take that on face value that doing the right thing morally, constitutionally, legally is the wrong thing politically? Why would you allow that argument to trump, uh, no pun intended, uh, what you believe? And look, I, you know, I've obviously been in favor of uh, proceeding with impeachment for a little bit now, but I will. I understand where Nancy Pelosi is coming from. I will make her argument for her. Um, if you look at polls right now, um, Democrats are in favor of impeachment by around 70, 75 percent of Democrats. Uh, independents are slightly opposed. Republicans are obviously very, very opposed. Pelosi's looking out at her caucus. She's looking at the seats that gave the Democrats the majority in the House that made her speaker. Those seats are in districts where those Democrats would not have won those seats if they did not get a good amount of votes from independents, from some Republicans, you know, ask Katie Porter, ask Lauren Underwood, ask Antonio Delgado if they'd be in their seats right now without Obama Trump voters, without Republican voters voting for them. And so if you look at the polls and you see independents and Republicans against impeachment and you see that not even all Democrats are for impeachment and you know that you're not going to get a conviction out of the Senate because Republicans are going to stand by Trump, you say to yourself, why put the caucus through that right now? And why take that vote if we know that a majority of Americans, overwhelming majority of Americans, agree with us on issues like health care, which voters happen to be very concerned about? So this is where Nancy Pelosi is coming from. Um, the counter to that is that's where public opinion is right now at a time where only one half of one party is making the case why the president of the United States should be impeached. And we haven't had a trial. We haven't had all these televised investigations, all this testimony. We haven't made a consistent, coherent argument about why Donald Trump should be impeached. All the news right now is 
process arguments. It's about contempt citations. It's about getting Don McGahn to testify. Who the fuck is Don McGahn? Most people don't know. So all of this is we're in the weeds on process right now, and we haven't begun to make the actual argument for impeachment. So the truth is, we don't know where the politics will end up on impeachment. They could be bad for Democrats. They could be good. Anyone who tells you they know where the politics are going to end up a couple months from now, a year from now, they're, they're, just, they're not telling the truth because none of us know. So the question is, do you do what seems right, what seems like the logical thing to do, which, what gives you the most compelling, coherent, logical argument, which is, here's the, you know, the special counsel investigated the president, found that he committed a bunch of crimes. By the way, he's been abusing his power in office in all these other ways since the day he was elected, since before he was elected. This is why he's unfit for office. This is why he's dangerous. This is why he feels like he's above the law. Lay out the case. You know, who knows what might happen then? You know, as is probably clear to people who are listening now, is that my opinion has shifted on this over time. Like, yeah. I have been... So talk about that. And by the way, everyone should check out your piece in Crooked.com today about how Democrats can win the politics of impeachment if we go down that road. It's a fantastic piece. And so everyone, uh, please check it out. Now I just write strategy memos for the open internet. It's become my new, my new life. Someone needs to. Um, so my view right after the Mueller report dropped was, I agree with Nancy Pelosi. We should keep impeachment on the table. You should do a series of high-profile hearings in the normal course of business that in the Oversight Committee, the Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committee that dramatized what was in the Mueller report and expand upon it. Right. Yep. And I, so I thought that. And then at the end of that process, if you could build support within the caucus and within the country for impeachment, you should proceed. There have been two things that have caused me to believe that now impeachment and imp- impeachment inquiry is the best path for Democrats to take. The first is the path that Nancy Pelosi originally put forward is not available because Trump has decided to take an unprecedentedly unconstitutional approach to the balance between two separate but equal branches of government and to say that no oversight is appropriate, that everything is a partisan fishing expedition. I will not cooperate. You'll get no witnesses. You'll get no documents. That's going to be true on everything from what was in the Mueller report to the hurricane the, to uh, oversight into the botched response, the tragically botched response to the hurricane in Puerto Rico to just all the other incidences of corruption throughout the administration. And so you're, you're deprived the the opportunity to expose to the public what Trump did through the normal course of business. So that's one. And the second one is I've sort of had this gnawing feeling about – it's almost a sense of deja vu as I've been talking about this. And so on Friday – I think it was Friday. I was – uh, on Twitter, as often happens on a Friday or any other day, <laughs> or any day, and yeah. I there was I saw that Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, was trending, and I was like, huh. So I clicked on that, and people were very worked up because uh, CNBC had written an article that said uh, voter activists are mad at essentially mad at Pelosi for not moving on impeachment, but political strategists agree with her, and it went through and quoted a lot of very smart, very accomplished pollsters, political consultants, essentially the people whose job it is to keep the House, take the Senate, win the White House. And included in that group was Robbie Mook, and who said that avoiding impeachment was the better political move. And I just had this feeling, not that I don't respect all of the people quoted in that story, this feeling that like there was just something deeply uncomfortable about, once again, the professional political class of I consider myself at least adjacent to, if if not an actual member of, telling activists 
we know better what is good politically. So check what you believe is right morally or constitutionally or whatever. That just felt very uncomfortable and felt like an unsustainable position for the party to be in because you're basically putting a neon sign over your head that says, we are not doing what we believe is right. We are doing what we believe pulls better. And that is always terrible politics. Yeah. It's just you, you, it is very hard to convince people that you are the change that they believe in when you act like the most typical fucking politician in American history. And that is how Democrats are coming off right now because no one is making the counter argument to impeachment on anything other than politics, right? Like they're going out and saying, it's what Trump wants, it'll solidify his base. The polls say it's bad. Those are not arguments to persuade people to your position. And I think that is a huge problem. And so I took from that, I was like, huh, maybe I should, as a thought exercise, try to make the case for why the politics of impeachment are good, right? That maybe that all the consultants are wrong. And so I spent way more of my weekend, my Memorial Day weekend, writing that piece than I intended to. But ultimately, I couldn't convince myself that they were good, right? That I... Like what I came away from was that the politics are not like the what well, the politics that matter are not what they are now. Like it is how how they are at the end of this, and that there is huge political risk in impeaching in heading down an impeachment path. There is no doubt about that, but there is also as much, if not more, risk in not heading down that path and basically turning a blind eye to your constitutional responsibility. And we can talk about why that is, but it, what it really came down to, and the reason I wrote this piece, was instead of trying to debate what was whether it was good politics or bad politics, or if or when we do impeachment, I decided to focus on how we do it. And to think about if we go down this path, which I think we are probably, at least seems as of today, like we are going to get to eventually – what would be the best way to do it to manage those politics to see if you can turn this into a moment when we are doing the right thing for the country, but we are also maximizing our chances to keep the House, defeat Trump, and even take back the Senate? And I think there is a path to do that, and that's what I laid out in the piece. I think the point you just made about what does the path look like, what does the next year look like if we do not pursue impeachment is a very important point and something that we haven't talked about as much. If you told me that if we walk away from impeachment, we could engage Donald Trump and the Republican Party in a great debate over health care coverage or a great debate over tax cuts, their, you know, the Republican tax cuts or the regulations they're stripping away and how they're helping Wall Street banks and all this other kind of stuff. If you told me that we could have that debate every day from now until the election in 2020, I'd tell you I'd rather have that debate than have a debate about impeachment. But that's not the presidency we're dealing with. That's not the age of media that we're dealing with right now. And I think it, it's, it's a misunderstanding of how Trump captures the news cycle every day and how he acts as a president, which is he is going to he has already told us that he is basically going to try to investigate his political opponents, turn this around on the Democrats, you know, try to have show trials <laughs> By the time we're uh, in the election, you know, next year, he's got his attorney general now uh, investigating the investigators. He's going to beat up on Democrats every day. And I've come to think that basically this is a race against time to find out who can own more news cycles between now and the 2020 election, uh, the Democrats or Donald Trump. And as we saw today, 
going after Trump on the crimes that he committed, on the impeachable offenses that he's committed, puts him on the defensive, makes him angry, and prevents him from being on offense against Democrats as he is on other days of the week when we're out there trying to get our message out. Now, this doesn't mean that our presidential candidates and our congressional candidates shouldn't be out there at town halls every single fucking day talking about their plan for health care and their plan for wages and all the other kind of stuff. But it does mean that we are in this constant media battle to see who can own the microphone that day. And Donald Trump, nine times out of ten, is always in control of the microphone. Impeachment, having the eyes of the nation focused on these live televised hearings over and over again is perhaps one way, perhaps the only way, to finally wrest the microphone away from Donald Trump. I think that is right. And as I was trying to factor the politics of my head, and it is, like, there is something uncomfortable about, like, this is Congress's most sort of sacred responsibility, right, is the biggest thing they do would be to undertake an effort that could lead to the removal of, a, of an elected president. Like that is a big thing. And so you sort of it feels weird to talk about politics, but it is a a, a political process. It is. It is the founder sort of intended it that way by giving it to Mm -hmm. the elected representatives of the public as opposed to the judiciary, which was also, you know, they had three branches. They they had to choose two here and they chose the one staffed by people who have to face the voters. But also we know it's political in the sense that Trump is has immunity by Republican cowardice in the Senate, right? They are, he, we, like, we have to be very clear, he is not going to be removed from office. Right. So we have to think about what we're trying to achieve here, and it is a political objective. And so a couple of thoughts about how to think about that. One is we have to think about an impeachment proceeding as what matters is the journey, not the destination. Mm-hmm. I don't as much as it will bother Donald Trump to be one of a tiny handful of impeached presidents. Uh, what matters is what we tell people into getting there. I don't think voters are going to be like, I was for him until you impeached him. But it could be that in the context of what what they learned over the course of that time, they were less likely to support Trump or they decided that a Democrat would be better off. And so I think that. That is the way to think about it, right? It's not what's going to happen at the end. It's what's going to happen between the day you open the inquiry and Election Day 2020. And how can you inform voters in a very specific set of voters, right? New new and sporadic voters who uh, helped elect Democrats in 2018, the voters who uh, voted for Trump in 2016 but disapprove of him now, the voters who voted for a third-party candidate in 2016, um, will they be available to us? Like That's how we have to think about that. The second thing is I think the arguments against impeachment politically are – they're not precise enough or they're they're somewhat inaccurate. And so they should at least be tested. It may still turn out that the risk of impeachment is tremendous and you just – everything is risky. Like getting out of bed is risky, right? So (laughs) – but the two points that people often cite is the effects of the Republicans impeaching Bill Clinton in 1998. And the way that story is told is historically inaccurate because a a couple of important points. One, Bill Clinton was – yes, Bill Clinton won seats in 1998, which was was a big surprise and was very unusual for a midterm election and a president's second term. And impeachment was something that was being discussed in that election because Republicans were talking about it as a response to uh, 
the Ken Starr investigation and Bill Clinton's conduct. Um, but the impeachment didn't happen until after the election. So the Republicans didn't. So we're basically, if we do not impeach or begin impeachment proceedings against Trump before the 2020 election, we are essentially rerunning the play that did not work in 1998, which is you put something that is a radioactive issue like impeachment on the table, but then you spend no time or effort to explain to people why you're doing it. Basically, they raise the charge without prosecuting the case. Second point is, yes, it is true that at the height of impeachment, Bill Clinton's approval ratings skyrocketed to 73% in the Gallup poll. That is true. But a couple of points around that. One, they were 66% on the day of the, in the last Gallup poll before the 1998 election. And while they hit 73, right, as Trump, as Bill Clinton was being impeached, the, his numbers went back down to what was sort of his baseline for the rest of the rest of his term, which was high 60s, low 50s, which is still very high, but we were also sort of living in a different, less polarized era. And then in the first election after impeachment, Democrats did pick up seats in the House and they did pick up seats in the Senate. So we should be clear about that. But Bill Clinton's vice president lost election in part because because the George W. Bush, who was running against Al Gore at the time, ran explicitly against Clinton's conduct. He's talked about returning decency to the Oval Office. To it was very specific that he was uh, running against Bill Clinton's conduct and the associated chaos that came from all the investigations, the impeachment. And even though Bill Clinton remained relatively popular, he was at least toxic enough with swing voters at the end of that election that Al Gore decided that Bill Clinton, the incumbent Democratic president of the United States, could not campaign for him down the stretch. And we can debate whether that was like that will be debated forever, whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision. But the fact that he even thought it is proof that impeachment had an impact on Bill Clinton's political viability. And so I think we have to think about we like at least have to understand that historical example correctly if we're going to evaluate the politics of impeachment going forward. Yeah, I think the other important point about that historical example is the argument that Republicans made for impeachment um, was somewhat discordant in the minds of voters because it, they're basically saying, yes, you might think he's doing a good job, this president. You might like the economy. You might think his presidency is a success, but we want to impeach him for personal conduct. And I think it also I think that gets to a very important point that you also raise in your piece today, which is that the Democrats messaging around impeachment and why they're impeaching Donald Trump and what for is critical. And I do think that if Democrats focus only on the Mueller report, that will be a political mistake and just a a mistake in general, because what Trump did around Russia and his obstruction is not the only impeachable offense he has committed since taking office. And so I think you need a broader message about Trump's abuse of power. I mean, just imagine a set of impeachment hearings where you not only talk about the Mueller report, but you talk about how Trump has been using his presidency to promote his private businesses and get rich, um, which has encouraged corporations and foreign governments to funnel money into the Trump Hotel and Mar-a-Lago if they want to influence, say, a corporate merger or U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, you ask people, is that how we want our president to make decisions? Uh, can you afford to join his private club if, if you need a certain policy? 
Um, he's placed himself above the law. He's abused his power to target his political enemies. He's ordered investigations into Hillary, Biden, Obama officials. He's tried to make Amazon pay more for postage because of a personal feud with Jeff Bezos, the company's owner. Imagine if he did that to your company. He's pardoned his friends and business associates, even when they violated human rights like fucking Joe Arpaio or stole money from people like his former business partner, Conrad Black. He told Border Patrol agents he'd pardon them if they broke the law. He's considering right now pardoning war criminals. I mean, he, his government tried to cover up the murder of a Washington Post journalist by a foreign government who he currently has a secret financial relationship with. Um and then there's issues that actually, you know, matter to people's lives. He acted illegally to sabotage the Affordable Care Act, build a border wall using money that Congress refused to appropriate, and separate immigrant children from their families, some of whom his government has lost. I mean, imagine the witnesses that you could bring before Congress to tell these stories and how you could connect his actions and his misdeeds and his crimes to what really matters to the American people. It doesn't have to be about just obstruction and contempt and the Mueller report and all this stuff. We can make this about issues that really matter to people. The other point I just want to make about the politics of it, right? Because, I mean, because they do matter, is people also say Democrats won in 2018 because they didn't follow Trump down rabbit holes and they had a disciplined, focused campaign on health care and the Trump tax cut. And that is true. But there is a second piece of that. And they also ran, whether they were running in blue districts or deeply red districts, they ran on providing a check and a balance against the chaos and corruption of Trump's Washington. And I, we talked last week about this Catalyst report. One of the findings in that report was one of the things that caused Democrats to have such a successful 2018 was a surge of new voters for a midterm. There were 13% of the electorate was new voters. And what message does it send to those voters if you sell to them in 2018 that you're going to provide a check and a balance to Trump, but then in 2019, you turn a blind eye to an what is essentially an impeachment referral from Bob Mueller about obstruction of justice? Like, What message does that send? The key to getting people to get off the sidelines and vote, and then to get them to go from being a first-time voter to a second, third, fourth-time voter is to show them that their vote matters. So if you make them an explicit promise and then break that promise within 365 days, then you are putting yourself at risk in 2020. We need every one of those voters from 2018 to turn out and then some to win this election in 2020. And so, yes, there there is real concerns about how this will affect some of those Obama-Trump voters who voted for a Democrat in 2018. Yes, there is some concern about how this will affect some of those uh, Republicans who voted for Trump in 2016, but now disapprove him and got them to vote for Nicaragua. There was some effect on that. There was also an effect on potentially base turnout. And we have to look at all of, look at a holistic picture here about the politics and not simply assign it to a set of white working class voters in the Midwest and allow them to dictate the strategy for the party, which I think too oftentimes we do. Yes. And last point here, and you talk about this in your piece as well, is I think Democrats should use the low expectations that impeachment will result in Trump's removal in their favor, right? The, the, the jury is not the Senate. The jury is the American people. And as Democrats start this, I think they should say explicitly, we don't necessarily expect that Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans are going to show political courage for the first time in the Trump presidency and do the right thing here. 
But we want everyone in that Senate on record before the 2020 election, and then the American people can decide. If Susan Collins, who's going to be in a hopefully in a close race in Maine, if Cory Gardner, who's going to be in a tight race in Colorado, uh, if Martha McSally, who's going to be in a tight race in Arizona, if they want to look at all this evidence about the president's abuse of power and unfitness for office and the crimes he committed and say, we stick with Donald Trump, we're going to, show, we're going to not have any accountability for Donald Trump whatsoever. We're going to let him off the hook for everything. If they want to take that vote, they can take that vote and then they can face the voters in 2020. And so, therefore, we set up a thing where when, you know, the Senate uh, exonerates Donald Trump and he says, oh, they exonerated me. No one's surprised because we know that basically this is about making a case to the American people, which we're going to do anyway, about why Donald Trump shouldn't serve a second term. And then the voters can decide. Ask Susan Collins right now. I bet if a reporter asked Susan Collins right now, would you vote to uh, exonerate Donald Trump or impeach Donald Trump? She'd, she'd at least say, well, I'd have to see the evidence. She wouldn't say I'm going to I'm going to she, she's not excited to take a vote on impeachment. Cory Gardner's not excited to take a vote on impeachment. Do you, you think these people are like super psyched that Democrats are pursuing this and then they get to uh, vote to exonerate Donald Trump? I don't think so. Yeah, they have no choice, because if they vote to exonerate Donald Trump in blue states in a presidential election year, they are they face real risk of wrath of both jacked up Democratic turnout and independent voters. So a state like Colorado, independents are the largest portion of the electorate. And if they were, some people have said to me since that piece came out, well, wouldn't McConnell just let Gardner, Collins, McSally, et cetera, vote to convict Trump because he doesn't need those votes? Mm -hmm. They can't take that vote either because that would betray Trump and they would basically, no Trump voters would turn out. So they are, you're putting them, putting tremendous pressure on them in an impossible position, which there's a way in which we can use this process to not just beat Donald Trump in the presidential election, but also take the Senate, which is what this is. This is what we are aiming for. Yeah. It has to be done right. Like if, if this is done poorly, it's a fucking disaster. But you have to have a plan. You have to have a message and you have to execute it with fucking precision and discipline. And that is not easy. No. In a live fire exercise like this will be. But it can be done. We just have to do it right. Yeah. And I think that's where my biggest anxiety is that we we fail in the execution here and it becomes a bunch of, you know, Democrats in disarray stories and, you know, we fuck it all up and, uh, you know, like uh, the guy who ate a bunch of fried chicken when, uh, you know, Don McGahn didn't show up for his testimony and thought that was a funny stunt. <laughs> that's that's the kind of shit that, yeah, that will, that will be politically bad for us. Okay, we talked a lot about this. Let's talk about the Democratic primary. On Wednesday... The Democratic National Committee announced its third presidential primary debate in September, along with new requirements for candidates to qualify. Candidates will now have to have 130,000 unique donors, up from the current threshold of 65,000 unique donors, and, not or, and they will have to poll at 2% or higher in at least four national or early state polls, up from the current rule of 1% in three polls. The new rules could dramatically winnow the number of candidates that make the debates as of right now. 19 candidates have qualified for the first debates later this month. These new rules could trim the field, possibly down to seven, eight, nine candidates. Dan, is this a good idea? It's hard to say if it is a good idea or not. It is a necessary idea. And I am very sympathetic to the the challenges the DNC faces here, right? They wanted to, especially after what happened in 2016, they wanted to be as fair as possible to give as many people an opportunity to go from the bottom of the pack to the top of the pack. And so they set the standard 
of 1% in a poll and 65,000 unique donors. And the goal with that was to make it so that grassroots support, small dollar grassroots support should be encouraged and it should be recognized. It just turned out that it was easier to hit that threshold than people expected. And that's that's sort of impossible to know at the time. There, I don't remember a bunch of people being like, this is super easy. There was just more engagement among a wider array of candidates than people expected. And it's easier to get people to get like you can convince people to give a few dollars online, especially if you're putting money behind uh, social media ads, which is what all these candidates have been spending all their money on. It's list building and uh, donations. And so you can get there. So they're trying to balance not putting their thumb on the scale in favor of establishment candidates who are currently front runners with, I think, also an obligation to the voters that they get to see the candidates who are most likely to be the nominee engage with each other. Right. Like if we go through a bunch of debates and we never see Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden or Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders or Biden and Bernie Sanders engage with each other then that is a disservice to the voters, right? Like if we end up in a world where Biden is on stage with Marianne Williamson, Andrew Yang, you know, a bunch of people who have a very, very, very small chance as of right now to be president, then we're not really getting to see, like to really test out the metal of that candidate. And so they're trying to find the right balance. I think this could dramatically winnow the field. Nate Silver made this point that it's just going to be very hard to get to 2% for a lot of these candidates. 1%, you're sort of within the margin of error and you can, you know, be zero most times, then one a couple times and you'll get there. Two is harder, especially in a, in a field this large. Um, so, you know, you could be down to, you know, eight to 10 candidates pretty quickly. And I. I'm torn on it. Like it's it's hard for those other candidates, especially the ones who got in the race late, to say tough. But I think ultimately this is probably the right thing to do. It's just the we're living in a world of unintended consequences. Yeah, I am I am sympathetic to all the candidates who are currently you know polling around one percent and haven't hit that donor threshold. Um, and I'm sympathetic to their argument. Well, I just need more time. I'm sort of in this catch twenty two like. I need to be able to break through, but in order to break through, I sort of need the media exposure, and that's why I need this debate. <laughs> um, and I get that to a point, but the counterexample here is Pete Buttigieg, who, you know, he's a small town mayor. He was on nobody's radar. He was polling at 1%. And within a month of announcing, maybe a little more, um, he was able to, through his CNN town hall, and of course, his interview with you, Dan, here on Pod Save America, uh, he was able to prove that he belonged in the top tier through several breakout performances. And it took him about a month or two months. And if this threshold, this new threshold were in place for these first two debates, I'd say it was certainly unfair. But by September, by the time September rolls around and all these candidates have been campaigning for a couple months and they've all had their chance to do their CNN town halls and their MSNBC town halls. And by the way, they've had a chance to do two national debates and get their message out there. If they still can't hit 2% in the polls, then I do think it's fair to say, you know, we still are going to have about eight or nine candidates on stage at once together. That's still a huge field. And we need, and those are the eight or nine candidates, not the two or three, eight or nine candidates most likely to win this race. And voters need to see them in a series of exchanges and not hear 30 seconds to a minute from each person and then move on. They need to hear a real debate. And by the way, that field, if it was right now, would be, you know, 
Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, perhaps as well. That that field would be the most diverse field of Democratic candidates, maybe in history. Three women in that field, two people of color, a gay man. I mean, that is a that is a very diverse field. It's diverse ideologically. And so I think, you know, if we end up with that field, with that group of candidates by September, after all these other candidates have been campaigning for months and had plenty of media exposure, um, you know, sanctioned by the DNC, then I think we're in a pretty good place. Yeah, the... The barriers to entry have been brought down for lesser-known political figures. And that's not just uh, Mayor Pete. It's also Andrew Yang. Yeah, that's who, true. Mayor Pete, at least, had, was well-known within the party as a rising star. He had turned a run for DNC chair into uh, like some fame internally. Like, I mean, even to the point where when we interviewed uh, President Obama on the last his last day in office, he mentioned Mayor Pete right. as someone who was a rising star within the party. Like he he's had that rising star label. But Andrew Yang, who's going to be in that debate, came, like came from nowhere, right? And yeah. he built a following on the internet through an aggressive strategy. And so you still like even if these people don't get in the debate, it gets harder. But you can still you can still make yourself known because you can get on podcast you it's this is just where like the three networks cnn and the new york times and washington post decide who gets coverage there are all kinds of ways to get coverage and you can still do it and if you have a compelling message and a good story and an interesting agenda you have a chance yep but the dnc does it to your point have an obligation to try to make these debates as informative as possible for the voters and just simply saying you were running for president as we've said before is not the same as actually running for president you have to be putting together a real campaign and getting traction and whether this is going to be the exact right line, maybe it should be slightly different. Maybe you should have 12 candidates, not nine. Maybe you should have seven, not nine. I don't know. But going to a world in which we are beginning as we get as we're within six months of the Iowa caucus, where we're focusing the attention on the people who've been able to gain traction is probably the right and only path to take, whether it's the, they're doing it the exact right way or not. We'll see how this plays out. But I'm, I understand why they did it. And it, it seems to be the only choice to make. All right, let's talk about the policy primary. A new story from Thomas Kaplan and Ested Herndon in the New York Times says that Elizabeth Warren is gaining in the polls and seeing bigger crowds and that she's, quote, been propelled in part by a number of disruptive choices, most notably the breakneck pace at which she introduces policy proposals. Dan, do you agree with that? And what do you think about Warren's overall strategy and the strength of her campaign? Elizabeth Warren is running the best campaign of anyone in this race. And it's not close. I agree. That is not to say there aren't other people running really good races, like the fact that Mayor Pete has gone from nowhere to a top tier contender and is by all accounts raising more money than perhaps anyone else in the field right now is also incredibly impressive. So we can debate it. But Elizabeth Warren knows why she's running. Her campaign knows what their path to win is. Every they're running it with strategic discipline. They are playing the long game. They are taking risks that are consistent with their strategy, and they are being opportunistic to find ways to make news in a very tough news environment, whether it is being the first to, in the context of the presidential campaign, to jump on impeachment, whether it is seeing that every other candidate is doing a Fox News town hall, so you're going to take a strong stance against Fox. Like She's just running the best campaign. Does that mean she's going to win? No. Does that mean she'll still also be running the best campaign three months from now? No. But she... I mean, this is a little uh, punny, I guess, but she has the plan to win, right? That is the actual <laughs> plan she has. And all of and all of her policies ladder up to a narrative about who she is and why she'd be a good president. It's very impressive just from uh, the perspective of 
people who have worked on campaigns before, both good ones and bad ones, she is running a very good campaign, and that should be noted. I completely agree, and it actually bothers me when people talk about Elizabeth Warren's success as only a result of the fact that she's releasing a bunch of policies, because as we have seen in the past, as we've talked about many times about 2016 and about other uh, races, you can put out a slew of 10-point plans and detailed policy papers, and that does not equal a winning political strategy by any means. (laughs) But the reason that Elizabeth Warren is successful and the reason that her plans are successful is because, like you said, they all ladder up to that one overarching message, right? Even her policies, it's all about sort of unstacking the debt. They, they, um, They fit a message, right, that you know, people who are powerful and wealthy, they write the rules, they write the laws, and everyone else gets screwed. And she's saying, we're going to rewrite the laws so that they're more democratic. We're going to rewrite the rules so that more people have a chance. And all of her policies flow from that. And like you said, she's also been very good about um, trying to get coverage, not just on her plans, but on things like the Fox News Town Hall, on being out there early on impeachment. Um, she's doing things like going to West Virginia to talk to Trump voters about opioids, and she's getting news that way. You know, she's out there. She was at a um, she was in an event last week, and she said, "Ask the other candidates if they get their money from a bunch of millionaires," which is talking about her very difficult and risky decision to ditch high dollar fundraising events and only do low dollar fundraising, which is risky, but she's then using it to her advantage by saying, you know, when Mayor Pete and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and some of these candidates who are doing a lot of high dollar fundraising and raising money from really rich people when they come through here, you ask them where they're getting their money from. I'm getting their money from grassroots donors. And so I really think it's smart that she's putting all the different pieces together and she's not just focused on uh, throwing out a bunch of policy plans. And one thing that is important to note there is her campaign has a very high risk tolerance. Yes. They understand that for anyone with the other than the possible exception of Joe Biden, just given his commanding lead in the polls right now, for everyone else, winning is a tremendous long shot. Right. It is probably sub 10 percent for every other candidate, not other than Joe Biden. And because it's very hard to win a primary period, it's really hard to win in a large, incredibly diverse field like this one. And if you understand how low your chances are of winning, then you recognize that you need to take risks. You have to have a strategy with high variance where there is there's tremendous downside risk to saying, I'm not going to do in-person fundraisers. Yes. Like you are betting on something. You're betting you're going to be able to sell a grassroots message and turn that into enough money to power your campaign. But there's also huge upside benefit if you execute it well, right? Being in front of impeachment, same situation. And like I would like to see more campaigns understand the importance of risky strategies. They have to be, it's like not risk for risk's sake. It is looking as understanding what your strategy is and then being willing to tolerate high risk for high benefit. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, been to the great credit of her campaign. And she hasn't panicked. Like it was only like a month ago that the New York Times wrote a story that was very criticized by many of us, but made the point that she was struggling, not moving in the polls, not raising money. And since then, she has moved in the polls and raised a lot of money and is firmly ensconced herself in the top tier of the race. And that's very impressive. The other thing I just say about her campaign is she 
has adjusted over time. I thought I sort of dreaded in some ways what Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign would look like a few years ago when Trump first came into office and she was getting in these Twitter fights with Trump all the time. Yeah. And it just felt very like she was her strategy was drafting on Trump's insults of her mm-hmm. and sort of allowing him to define the four corners of the conversation around Elizabeth Warren and that you're going to like Trump's going to speak. You're going to respond. And it felt 2016 ish to me. Yep. But since then, she has found a way to tell her story and communicate her message. Absent Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. Like tr- like Trump is a is part of every part of every conversation in America. So you don't have to mention it all the time. And. Her way of communicating, her way of telling her story right now has has really changed since the early part of the Trump era to a way that I think is a much more effective both primary and general election strategy. And it's impressive. So some of the other candidates released big policy proposals of their own this week. Uh, Joe Biden promised to triple spending on low-income schools for things like teacher raises and access to pre-K. Beto became the second candidate to release a comprehensive immigration plan that would offer a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants and end deportations of undocumented immigrants who don't have criminal backgrounds. Uh, Kamala Harris released a plan based on the Voting Rights Act that would require states to get preclearance to pass new abortion restrictions if the state has a bad track record. Uh, Dan, what's your reaction to these plans? And do you think these candidates have felt pressured at all by Warren putting all her plans out? And should they? I think they all seem uh, very like like much of the policy that's been released by all the candidates, well thought out, aggressive, speaks to the the moment we're in. And by the moment we're in, I don't mean Trump being president. I mean a world in which our we're living in a world of massive transformation, both in our government and our economy, et cetera. And so, like bold, right? Like like these are bold, these are good bold plans. I'm not an expert enough in some of them to know like the exact precision of how good they are, but they they're compelling. I certainly think Elizabeth Warren is putting some pressure on some candidates to put out more policies because she set the bar. But this is also, in fairness, to these candidates, this is how you run for president. Yeah, right? is that you, you put out try to, you try to tell tell the public what you stand for, what kind of president you would be, and you try to do it in a way that makes news. Right, Kamala Harris did hers. Uh, did her announcement in anticipation of an MSNBC town hall she was doing. Better O'Rourke is someone who's defined his candidacy around growing up and and representing a border district. And so immigration is an important part of it. So I think there's some pressure, but this is also what presidential campaigns should be doing. It's what they sort of owe the voters, and it's an important part of strategy. The key is making your policies be more than a one-day press hit. They have to be a data point in a larger story that you're trying to tell the public. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I thought the same thing, too. Your, your policies, it, it's not just about throwing out random policies to satisfy people who are saying, you need more policy. You're not substantive enough. Look at all of Elizabeth Warren's policy. And then you react by throwing out a bunch of policy. Every policy proposal you release, every press event you do, every strategic move you make should be in service of the larger story you're trying to tell about why you should be president, why people should vote for you in this very crowded field over everybody else. And even if you don't want to make the explicit argument about why you should be the nominee and not everyone else, it should be implicit in just about everything that you say. And I do think, look, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have to worry about this a little less because they have near universal name ID. They're at the top of the field. Everyone knows who they are. And so they're going to lay out their plans and talk about why they should be president. And that's that. And then you have the next sort of two people in the polls 
um, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren, they've sort of been able to stand out. I mean, Warren's policy is her message in some ways. All of her plans add up to a larger story about where she wants to take the country and what's currently broken about our politics. Um, Pete's personal story and his age and where he comes from in many ways is his message. Um, He's lighter on the policy side right now, but he's sort of telling a story about who he is and where he comes from and generational change. That's his message. I think then when you get to um, Beto and Kamala, who are sort of the next two people in the polls, you know, they both stand out in, in different ways and have different stories to tell. But I think their challenge is to figure out what policies they can put together, what tactics, what strategies they can all put together that tells very unique stories about each of them and why they would be, you know, the best nominee and why they should stand out and why you should vote for them and not all of these other qualified nominees. Yeah, that's right. It is, you know, every candidate needs to know why they're running for president and what story they want to tell voters. And if you don't know that, you're going to run... Uh, a very poor campaign because everything's just going to be pretty fucking random. The, I think the, the Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg comparison is really interesting because Warren is running entirely on policy and Buttigieg is running almost entirely without policy, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean he doesn't have positions, but he has been very deft at, like, at, at running in a way that allows people to, regardless of where the he's elided the d- the debates around issues like Medicare for all or the Green New Deal by kind of being for broad versions of lots of things. So if you're for Medicare for all, Mayor, you know, Mayor Pete has given you reason, as he did in the Posse America interview, to believe he's open to uh, a Bernie Sanders version of Medicare for all. But if you're against that, he has said he's also willing to consider a buy-in. And so like some, like there is, it's just very interesting that you can have success entirely with policy and and have almost as much or as much success without a focus on policy. It's just, it's, it's like it's two different campaigns, both being run well. Yeah. What, what ties them both together is knowing what your story is and why it's unique compared to the rest of the field and driving that message home every single day and not being random about what you decide to speak about um, and what you know where you decide to go. So, okay, when we return, we will have our interview with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Dave Mandel of Veep. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
I'm Oren Siegel, and I've been fighting extremism, anti-Semitism, and hate for more than 20 years. You should subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, to get a unique perspective on the daily work and the people who have dedicated their lives to exposing, fighting, and disrupting extremism, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. We bring you the stories of people and communities not only impacted by hate, but who offer new perspectives and ways to push back. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. On the pod today, we have Veep's star and its showrunner, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and David Mendel. Hi. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's so good to have you guys here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is exciting. This is exciting. I'm it freaking is out. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've ever laughed harder than the last season of Veep. Yay. Oh it my was gosh. Thank incredible. You. Well, um, you were a part of it. Yes. <laughs> you guys were you big, were. big, big part. parts of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Two things that I 100% know of, and also a lot of uh, spiritual help and like sending us to people to talk to, but two really killer jokes. I mean, are we allowed to start yeah, with that? Let's yeah, start but, there. yeah, but, but yeah. just for the listeners so they understand, yeah. John, you came in and, I came into and the spoke room. with the uh, writers and producers. Uh, Which is my, a big part of our process. I mean, yes. I think we've talked about that too, that sort of the opening, certainly, month of our show is like for us a really kind of kind of good excuse to bring people like you guys in. Also. Yeah, it's like the yeah. most fun thing I ever it's, did. I it's get to like sit with really you guys. really enjoyable. It's like like our little kind of <laughs> yeah. weird salon or something. It's yes. like a, our podcast that we're not recording, basically. Yeah. Right, yes. exactly. So, so I did that for a while, and then, Tommy, you did it too. Yeah, I hung out with the writers of Talk Iowa. Oh, yeah, you I were, didn't. You I were was hardcore Iowa for Yeah, that. we just yes. geeked out about all things corn-related. Yes, of course. Caucuses. All of which we... And so when you were there... The opening scene of the final season, which was the landing at the wrong airport. And again, I can't remember if we said it in the room right then and there into your face, but I can only tell you when you left, I wrote down oh, like the op- opening scene. <laughs> I'm going to steal everything that guy has, never bring him back. We own him. No, um, but that, was the, that just became the opening scene of Selena yeah. trying to make her announcement and being at the wrong airport. And I don't think we did the same mistake you guys we did cedar rapids cedar falls yes. or something what like that yours? cedar rapids uh he was supposed to land in des moines got it yeah we, i i'm such a doofus that i watched the episode and i was like holy shit that happened to obama too no kidding no way that's amazing that i remember like <laughs> a year and a half ago stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's hilarious but the thing is is that i honestly believe that if that hadn't been pitched as a real thing we i would have pushed right on back. the edge of dinging it yeah. yes i would have pushed back yeah. at dave and said no it's too broad it's not plausible etc cetera, etc cetera. you imagine being barack obama i didn't remember that happened I, we I were totally just like, forgot. what the fuck, man? Like, how does this happen? But the other thing, too, the was, I mean, thing. I will say, not to geek out for a second, but, like, it was so great to shoot because you get to do that kind of, like, I don't know, like like Silence of the Lambs, like you're in the wrong place where it seems like a plane is landing and yeah. that sort of hello, Iowa moment. Right, and right, it was right. so, it was a really good joke. So but the other, thank you for messing that up. And then the other huge joke uh, was we got from John and it was in the final episode yeah. of the season, and that's when Selena is taking repeatedly taking, repeatedly but in this case, taking, taking yeah. uh, a language from the speech of um, Devito, Governor Devito, who is the uh, veteran um, wounded warrior. Wounded warrior. That was our little ad because you told the story about how yeah. basically you got sent by the Kerry campaign 
to take lines from Obama, right? That was your yes. first time you ever met him. That was the first time I met Obama, right. is that Obama, uh, Kerry said that Obama had a line in his convention speech that Kerry wanted to use. Was it? Did we steal the same line, too? Something about multiple Americas or two Americas or three Americas? It, I think we it made was, it. Was it something in that stand ballpark? Stand for America? It was, well, yeah. Oh. Well, the, the, the yeah. interesting thing was there was, so the, the most famous one was, was Kerry having the same line as right. Barack Obama in his speech. But there was also, so when Kerry walked out, he said, I'm John Kerry reporting for duty, which made sense because he was a, a Vietnam vet. Um, but introducing John Kerry was Senator Max Cleland. Yes! That was it. I, I knew there was another that. part of Yes, of yes. course. A triple amputee. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which we, we did not go triple. We went one crutch, kind of a limp, well, <laughs> indistinct. And I'll just say, per- perhaps Max Cleland was thinking about using the line I'm reporting for duty, or yes. no, he was going to say John Kerry is here reporting for duty, and then introduce John Kerry. That was going to be his line. It's funny, and then, they, and then the advisors thought, wouldn't it be better if John Kerry said, said himself self. he's reporting because he had it already? Right. It's as if so. You stole from John Kerry. John Kerry stole from Max Cleland. So in a lot of ways, you stole from Max Cleland. Yeah, that's as how well. you like to think yes. of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. I did the same thing though. I watched that episode, and as soon as I saw that go down, I was like. Did I tell this story? <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. Yes, you did. And we, we, we wrote it down we instantly. Selena steals language from crippled guy. That's, that's yeah, what I remember I wrote it vividly because yeah. I was there that day, and I remember looking at Dave, and we both sort of looked at each other and nod, and we're like, "Oh yeah, that's going yeah, in." She's going <laughs> to do that, and we actually introduced, <laughs> even though he barely has a line, but in our debate episode. We very specifically hired, um, it's played by uh, Ian Roberts, who's one of the UCB co-founders with Matt Walsh. So one of the really original improv guys. Uh We hired him for this nothing role, which was to stand at one of the debate podiums with a crutch, just so that, and I had had to explain to him. Yes, in episode three. Yeah, yeah, thank you for doing this. It will pay off. She's going to do all this. And we didn't even know at that point she, he was going to be her VP possible pick. We just knew she was, was going like, to steal from him. You're gonna, she's going to steal from you and your story. And so it was like trying – It was, and he was good enough to do it too. But, yeah, so that was that went right in. I mean, I think what people love about the show, what I love about the show is you guys spare no one. So is it ever hard to deliver or write or get out a joke about a disabled veteran who you're just Will you kicking tell the me? shit out of? <laughs> I, listen, I don't know what Tommy thinks. I thought it worked. <laughs> I don't know what Tommy's going on about. I got to tell I, you I something. Apologize. There, but let me tell you, you know, this show's been this show's been edited too, by the way. I mean, this the 45-minute finale was originally an hour 15. So uh, suffice it to say there were a few more of those jokes in I'm the sure. original. I mean, we piled on. Yeah, there's know? always one where you just go, we can't do that one. But it always helps to make the other ones that much more yeah. digestible. Like where you, well, we cut that really horrible one. Right. Yeah. Uh, when did you know how the series would end? And did real-life politics affect it? Because I read somewhere that there was an original ending and, and you guys changed it. Yeah. Wait, wait, when did we know how it was going to end? Yeah, exactly how the series was going to end. Well, we thought it was going to end one way about... uh, We sat down to originally, basically... Two years ago. Yeah, when we we initially made the decision that this was it. We we sat down and this was going to be it and here's this finale. Yes. And a lot of it is what you saw. I mean, it was a build to a brokered convention and all of those things. But I think it had, at the time, which was, you know, funny and good, but a more maybe less surprising ending or a variation, I guess. Like yes. Jonah screws things up and it costs her the presidency. And then years later, 
Richard calls her to be his vice president yes. pick, sort of the Biden to his Obama, Obama, I guess. And we and we discussed about how would she would we see on camera her say yes, or we would see and we I think we both decided we'd have to see that moment right before she says yes. Right, just as she starts <laughs> to you get yeah. the sense she might and then the show's over. But then uh then we decided not to do that, and the show shut down. Well, then we shut down. Yes, for, for my um, cancer romp. And, and um, as I like to say, the best thing that ever <laughs> happened to the show, honestly. <laughs> I mean, thank God, honestly. Thank God. Yeah. Um, oh, Listen, thank I'm you for a team cut. player, guys. You're so glad I'm you a cut team it with a joke. <laughs> you cut it with a joke. Um, but anyway, and so, and it, it, it actually, in fact, all kidding aside or kidding included, it did help us because, you know, Trump carries on with his heinous self uh, parading around like a maniac. And it set, helped us set the tone for the next season and helped us make decisions as to where we were going to end up. Mm-hmm. I mean, just well, because we, sh- we get to live more in Trump. Yeah, world. we shut down right um, I guess it was right at the right before the holidays of 2017, and 2018 when he entered that second year of his presidency, that's when like like you forget like year one seemed calm in comparison. Year two was where he really like stepped on the throttle and just like the 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 the, the falsehoods, the tweeting, it all just got like more crazy. And as we were sitting around, it just started to feel like. Everything has changed. The norms are out the window. And in some extent, why is Selena Meyer the only person being punished? Like, it right. seems people, like, people yeah. who do shitty things Pe- do win. They're winning left <laughs> and right. And They're actually, getting cabinet posts. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's what drove to the, us to that it, decision. It's funny, it made sense because there's so long in the series where I thought to myself, oh, it's got to end without her being president because that it just seemed like that's where it was going. But when I saw the ending, I'm like, oh, that actually totally makes sense with what's going on in politics right now. Yeah. She, yeah. she caught the car. She what? She caught the car. She caught the car. She's yeah. the dog that caught the car. Yeah, yeah. She looks miserable. Right. It was good. So. <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> I honestly only watched it because you guys were coming in, not beca- because I was afraid <laughs> to say, that sounds bad, but it was what? because because <laughs> I was afraid to say goodbye to the show. I was so sad to see it going. I like so couldn't. Saved- I could the last episode yeah. of this season. Yes, the last episode of this season. I was just couldn't get myself to click play because I was so sad to see these characters go. Yeah, me too. It's been a kind of a heartbreaker. We we watched the debate episode. Oh my god! On the drive back from a live show we did in New Hampshire, and we we wanted to like stream it, and so we had all of our you know Wi-Fi set up, and Tommy and I were laughing in that bus so loudly <laughs> so hard watching I, the debate thing was the, it was inappropriate it was maybe the funniest scene of the whole it was like oh, being good. trapped on a, just two old uncles <laughs> just, just laughing their heads <laughs> off like, at a tv I was they were it was it the was, man yeah. the man up thing was just oh good i mean i've always wondered about that i mean you guys made a decision to depict the the first woman president as basically a misogynist yeah <laughs> how did you how did you think about that and what well, I've always played her as a misogynist I mean, from almost day one. You know, we were constantly saying, you know, she would say things like, as a woman, I would never start a sentence with as a woman, you know, because <laughs> right. everybody hates women. Why would I do that? <laughs> By the way, that's right. I mean, you could make an argument that, you know, 
uh, women aren't that popular to a certain extent, you know, as certainly as leaders or to be taken seriously. And so uh, she doesn't like her sex and for all sorts of reasons. She does. I mean, we, and we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But um, so she's always been that way. But then we've sort of gotten, I would say, more uh, in your face with her uh, gender. I think it's self. probably maybe started somewhere. OK, I always thought like somewhere in the distant past where she didn't want to be treated differently. Mm -hmm. Like there was an attempt at, you know, I'm not the woman running for Congress or the woman running for Senator. I'm just somebody running. Like it starts in a, Maybe it started in an okay place, but maybe, it, yeah. But, but she it, but has it, parents who but she definitely that like she had of her. she had a psychological leaning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. So those two things collided, and it got worse. Yeah. But it proved very popular to the American voting public. So yeah, you don't mess with perfection. It really spoke to to the the throngs. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> um, you told Vogue, uh, "Extreme times call for extreme comedy." Like, what do you think that means? Uh, you know, it came to me, and I was just grateful <laughs> to be able to say it in the it's moment. It's so good. It's so well, good. She was also just thrilled to be in Vogue. It I was mean, perfect. Con- honestly, I was yeah. like buzzing. I was in Vogue. Um, no, um, I, 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 I mean, these are extreme times. I think we could all agree to that, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. And um, and so we pushed, we pushed the limits of what we were doing on the show this season. Yeah. Um, and so the, the comedy in our show was very extreme this season. And I think that had we, for instance, this material would never have flown uh, three, four years ago. It would have been too, yeah. it would have been, we would have been like, what are you guys doing over there? I mean, but, is, is that the, the flip, but on the evolution? flip side, I do think there is a natural yeah. evolution, but I think on the flip side also though, when you go back and watch, like, I, I sort of in the run-up to the final season went through all of it. And in yeah. light of what was going on, I re, you know, I rewatched all the seasons previous. Some of it starts to seem quaint in a right. really strange way on the flip side. So, you know, these two things fight each other, but you have to cut through the noise. And sometimes I don't know how else to the do fa- it. The fact that she basically accidentally has her ex-husband killed... <laughs> And it wasn't like a big conversation when you guys did that in the show. Like people weren't really like talking about that much the next day because it actually made sense. I know. <laughs> I mean, that was insane. I just thought about that. I'm like, oh yeah, we sort of forgot that Andrew was killed two or, episodes or was ago. He? Or was he? You know. Well, that's right. Or was he? Well, he wasn't obviously because you see him a couple times after the fact. But uh, yeah, it's not that uh, but outrageous. Casual horribleness is the order of the day, and that is. I mean, and I guess. I don't know. I, I would almost rather someone like kill their ex-husband than, I don't know, some of the the stuff going on just on a you know in the in the education department. You know what I mean? So yeah. not to you know. I, I, know, I just wish we didn't have easier. to choose. Yeah. I just wish we didn't. It was such a horrible choice. Um, <laughs> so I feel like the uh, the insults got more baroque in this final season, but also it does seem like you did not miss an opportunity to go after liberals too, right? It does seem like the show chose to make liberal language a target, in part because it was a primary about some of those issues. But do you feel like that that was that fun? Just did you feel as though this was a chance that you guys had in this show that other shows don't have? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it was it was from just a pure writing 
perspective, it was so much fun. And I do think it's one of the unique things that was laid down about Veep before I ever got there by Armando when he created it, when you guys sort of set up that there was no party, there was no Democrat, there was no Republican, and that it's an equal opportunity offender. And I think it's, I guess I would hate for people to dismiss what we did this season as just Trump. Yeah, you know what I mean? Good like, point. and that's, and I guess, so I, I guess in some ways I almost pride myself that we, we attack from the, uh, the other side too and lay into them on whether it's, you know, the PC stuff, the language, a lot of the, you know, the, the bending over backwards of diversity and some of these things to try and at least, again, have some fun with that stuff so that, again, it's an equal opportunity offender because it's that thing that you've always said when you meet people from D.C. that, like... Yeah, they, they depend... It really doesn't matter who you're talking to if it was... John McCain back in the day, or if it was Nancy Pelosi or whoever, or, or this senator or that congresswoman. Uh, please don't talk about John McCain. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Um, but uh, who was a fan of the show, by the way? But everybody, the eat, and anybody we spoke with, first of all, thought we were making fun of the other party. That always, always thought it was the always. other. Whoever we were with. Oh, you guys are really sticking it to them. Pick your them. Yeah. Right. But the thing I, I'm, I've said this before, but the thing that gave me a great deal of pride was when I had the incredible opportunity to briefly meet with uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. And she told me that she and Tony Scalia would get together every week and have lunch, mm. post an episode of Veep to break it down and talk about Veep and laugh that about it. Hilarious. Now, that That's gave amazing. me great joy. And, so and I read you guys sat down with Mitt Romney and that he was a fan of the show and provided yeah. insight before the fourth season. He came yes. in just like you guys did. He I mean, came that in. Makes you he feel was better. awesome. With Anne. Yeah, they you both came. it up with yeah. Mitt? We did. He was charming. Huh. And he, and he he gave us a line that we stole from him. Remember, if yeah. you're if you're if you're uh, making excuses, or if you're explaining, if you're explaining yourself, you're losing. Oh yeah. Did someone tell him that after he lost? <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you the most interesting thing about his loss, which was we actually. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it was like the most in depth interview he's ever had, but we did talk to him because I think it was when we were going into the previous season, so right. she was out of office. And so we had talked to a, a couple of people like, what's it like to lose? And the thing that was interesting was almost what he said was, he talked so much about you know, his kids and his grandkids and and, and, for, and his wife and his, the support system. And it was so funny because it was just everything he was saying, we were just sitting there laughing going, Selena has none of this. Yeah. She's gonna lose her mind. Right. So it was just really interesting to see somebody who was actually dealing with it kind of in a very adult way. So again, yeah. we get pieces of things in different places. Yeah, I will but, oh, oh go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, I don't want to interrupt. You go ahead. Oh, I was just going, he went and used the men's room and he didn't lock the door and somebody walked in on him, but he doesn't know that. <laughs> he does now. <laughs> I don't think he listens to this. Yeah. I don't, I don't. <laughs> I'm going to send him the link. Like, they get podcasts in Utah? <laughs> they do. No, they no. Do. No, we're going. Yeah. Walter mm -hmm. Tom. No, you're not. <laughs> Why do you think people root for selena even though she's such a horrible person because i found myself rooting for her by the end too and i'm like what really even towards the very very, towards end? The very well except we should talk about gary because gary you root up to the tom james i think which is on purpose you're like when she takes down tom james oh 
I was rooting for that. Which yes, the whole thing with Tom James is amazing. You're like really happy. Yeah, it's so good. And you're clapping, and then you start to go, "Oh my God, it's what am I clapping? Like she's a monster." And that was, you know, the way she tells her father, the way she tells her daughter that her father is dead is pretty tough. Sort of in passing. Yeah. It's a tough thing to hear in passing. <laughs> yeah. She told him and then she, she told her and then she left. I, I, I don't know why you're rooting for her, except, you know, to play her, I have to root for her. So <laughs> maybe sense. you're picking up on that. You know, you can't, you can't play a uh, um, heinous or sort of evil, inherently evil character, which she really is ultimately, becoming more sort of evil over over seasons. But um, you can't play her with that kind of judgment. I mean, everybody has a backstory, even yeah. the worst people in the world. So right. you've got to come at it that way, you know? I, I always say, I think, A, she has skills. I mean, the, you know, she got to where she was for reasons. But also, uh, forgive me, I, they like this lady here. Uh, I think they, they when people go, we want Selena to be president, that's not quite what they mean. I think they mean they would like you to be president. Yeah, oh, that, okay, that definitely I, has something to do with that. Yeah. Maybe, but I would also- I'm allowed I, to say it. You're yes, allowed it to, does, but yeah. I'm going to reject Fair that theory enough. and, and <laughs> say- Welcome to our world. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to say that I think, too, um, she's the, the, the frustrations that she has, particularly early on in her career, are ones that you can identify with, you know, yeah. and uh, being uh, constantly- put back down, shoved back down. I mean, who doesn't identify with that? You right. Know? Right? Yeah. So. It's also something that, like, I, I think was true in the early seasons, true in the later seasons as well, that there are little moments where there's cracks and the real world and the real consequences of politics seeps through and Selena gets upset, right? When she meets a veteran or something, she gets sort of, like, shaken up by having met somebody who is affected by these policies. How... Can, oh, yeah. You know, can you talk a little bit about just sort of when the real world and the real consequences were allowed to seep through? It happens a few times in this season. I mean, someone, she's staring at a row of uh, monks was pretty tough. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, it's a game, right? There's a show. It's a comedy. It's a game. And yet you're there are little touches of when the real world shines through. Well, if it helps a joke. Uh, <laughs> then it's going to shine through. I mean, I think that's the 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 fact of the matter. She's she's in the in that particular episode. She's made a deal to to after freeing Tibet to to unfree Tibet, <laughs> 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 and 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 she you can see that she's met with the kind of horror of that. But she doesn't change her mind, obviously. But she can tell it's wrong. She yeah, knows she, can she tell feels it's guilty. Wrong. Yeah. And you even see it in a the final episode. Yeah. A little bit. Not enough to make Gary her. At the end too. Yes, There's of course. Absolutely. Or when he's gone. And, you know, there yeah. is always an asset. I mean, you know, at what at what price this right. this glory for her? Yeah, yeah there's, there's like the last episode is so emotional. There's that really touching scene with Kevin Dunn who plays Ben Ugh. in his hospital room. Yeah. Uh, there's a really poignant scene when you're all alone for like one second in the Oval Office. You sort of feel the weight. And then there's Gary at the coffin at the end. And it's just, I don't know, it's like tearing up for Gary. <laughs> Poor Tony Hale just got screwed. He got way screwed. But he loved it. He was cool with it. Um. The actor or the the character? Gary, sorry, I'm switching. <laughs> um, I don't think he loved it. He was like, "But you, the flowers look great," or something. You know, it's a no, nice. No, 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 no. Anger there, at first, okay. but he can't yeah. help himself. No, but he's. I mean, he does show up and he yes. does bring 
the Dubonnet lipstick and right. place it it's on a her coffin. It's a two-way dysfunctional It did remind me of, like, this is the cautionary tale of the top aide that stays along. Too long. Too long. Too long. Yes. Is that that's a real, like, uh, a little, DC thing? Oh, that's oh, great. Yeah. A little bit of that. You're like, man, you've been there. You're still there? Yeah. <laughs> 20, 30, 40 years later? Yeah, it's Reggie Love, age oh, 49. That's the other, yeah. By the way, that's the other story we stole. <laughs> But we had Gary sleeping by her front door at a hotel. Mm. Oh yeah. Oh, did Reggie for do different that? reasons? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Was... Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but that was another one. Thank you guys. <laughs> the, um, I was interested in the, the foreign interference storyline in in this season. A lot of DC types during the Mueller investigation basically made the case the Trump campaign was too incompetent and bumbling to actually collude with the Russians. You guys seem to prove the opposite <laughs> or just prove that that's not true, that this like sort of incompetent bumbling administration sort of fell into colluding with the with the Chinese. Were you thinking about that at all when you had that storyline? Well, it started a long time ago. That yeah, I know. That's, I mean, the, the, the funny thing and again, or the horrible thing, take your pick, yeah. is her, Selena's ongoing involvement with the Chinese and Tibet mm-hmm. and started in like season three, I think, right? It, I mean, it hit for, it hit hard in like five for us. I mean, they had been around, and then it for that was something we really started to go after. And so, I can't say to you back then it was a hundred percent like, oh, and I can't wait till they try and like collude and affect the election in a very similar way. But it was there. I mean, that that was what was so like horrifying was it was we were like right up next to it without even knowing it i mean i, I don't know how else to say that we you know, bumbled into yeah, it. yeah we we sort of bumbled <laughs> into it the same way selena did which was kind of you sort of just had to um and then once it was there she embraced it because you know why not do whatever it takes but i think right. what was so I, and i guess i don't know if we were tr- making it it wasn't on our agenda but i do think there was this element of like how easy it could be like i mean you hate to say it but like we had those jokes with like uh uh merman Merman. where he's trying to buy in and he's like new plan i'll buy your house in palm beach for 150 you know 110 million (laughs) dollars i mean you know we're still waiting on some of these like real estate taxes to kind of come through it's just not that hard right there's a lot of different avenues and possibilities no kidding (laughs) it's funny but it's awful yeah. Um, do you see any uh, anti-Selenas in the field right now? <laughs> Anti-Selenas. Or Selenas. <laughs> or Name a Selena. We'll take a Selena. Um, I think this Poot, Pete Buda, Buda Bege, 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 is, uh is is pretty anti-Selena. That's true. Yeah, that strikes true. me as, as such. Yeah. Uh, but it's too early days. I, 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 I don't. I, I do I'll think take... he has a good sense of humor, though. Great sense yeah, of humor. Yeah, I think he's got a really good sense of humor and a really good sense of timing, if nothing else. Just yeah. like on like a pure like building blocks of comedy. You know, we always with like casting, there are people that like are yeah. enemies of comedy <laughs> and then like <laughs> friends of comedy, which like they can kind of handle it ish, and then actual like comedy generators. That's and I think one. he's sort of a comedy generator. Huh. And I'm okay with a friend of comedy in the White House or a comedy generator, preferably not a, an enemy of comedy. But. Where do you put Trump in that? Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like, an, it, he's like, again, the norms. I don't know, like an accidental comedy generator. I don't know. That's yeah. a good, that's, yeah. 
Yeah, I guess. Like the three I don't know if he's ever been intentionally funny. Yeah, I no, think no. That he, I think he tries. I guess when oh, he, he tries, wants it's to be. the worst. Yeah, he wants to be funny. What he thinks is funny. He's a bully. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. mean funny. He's um, he's a bully. <laughs> We're not fans. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, um, I was misled then. I should leave. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed, Julia, that in 2018, you were sort of got into real life politics a little bit. You know, you filmed a video trying to get people to vote. Was Oh yeah. Was it multiple Was videos. it Trump? Was it all your years on the show? I mean, what what sort of pushed you? Oh, I've I've done a lot of political sort of activism sort of over the, and, years. Over the years. Yeah. I mean, we went I took my boys and went to in fact, that's where the Nevada Nevada joke came from because we that was part went of your training, right? That, or, yeah. Yes, when we went uh uh, first go round, uh, whatever, uh, 2008, right? Uh, yes. Uh, and we went to uh, Nevada and I took the kids and we just were going door to door. And that was the training they gave us was don't don't say Nevada, which is, of course, how yeah, it's, a, it's meant Nevada. to be pronounced. It's they're crazy about that. They're they're crazy. They're the, the other one is we got three seasons out of that, though. I mean, literally, <laughs> we yeah. we had those jokes in. I mean, could not get enough of that. Obama could never get his head around the fact that you can't say Waterloo, Iowa. It's Waterloo, Waterloo, and they get upset. Waterloo, you have to say it like that, or else hmm. they yell at you. Hmm. Okay, I wish I'd known that because we, we would have worked that, that in. Why Next didn't season, you tell us? Tommy. Yeah, Next season. <laughs> yeah, movie. Do I want to go to the movies with you? I would love to. <laughs> I seven saw a great seasons, movie. Seven seasons in a movie. <sighs> I don't know. We can't wrap our head around anything yeah. right now. We're still we're still recovering from having made that finale. It took it took every fiber of our emotional, creative, intellectual beings to to get that thing out. And yeah. So we're sort of still <laughs> it, we crawled it, here it today. It was like a brutal labor, a good yes. labor, but good, it, yeah, good. We had was... a beautiful baby, but. It was 88 hours of yeah, labor there was a followed by a C-section. Where we were sitting in the fake <laughs> oval, like together, and you had just gotten out of your wig, and you were like, I, I don't know, but both of us were just like sweating for no reason. It was just like, and we were just like, uh, <sighs> yeah. I know. That's what. It Do felt you like. want to see a movie with me? That was my question. Yes. <laughs> I started to get back to it. Go to, go to I will say the following, which is the Trump stuff. It, it just made it hard. It really did. I mean, I feel like we. We got out just in time. And so <laughs> I never say never, but it just like it got yeah. really hard, like just every move. And whether it was sometimes it was just worrying like, you know, we did the thing where we had the, the runner, the, the the killer runner. And then and then all of a sudden down in Florida, like shoot him. And, and you just start to go like, well, like, About oh, immigrants. I, yeah, it was yeah, just, it's a. And by the time you watch, you really do think, I was like, oh, that's because of the Trump rally. And you're like, no, that was no, the line. We no, we were, after that's the like fact. a year before it. They're just catching, it just felt like By the way, they same for the vaccination up. stuff. Yeah. Right. But the right, you were ahead of that too. We were ahead of that. Two years ago. Two years ago, we started on that, that one. There. Maybe yeah. you got to stop giving this guy ideas. Yeah, yeah right. And say, and <laughs> that now was for, the Colbert thing we did. Yes, yeah, we did a We went on the Colbert show where he basically like pops into the VP universe to say, stop it. Like you're you're changing Everything our world. Everything you're doing yeah. is coming true in our world. But so, then, then there's a whole thing about uh, numerals, Arabic mu- oh numerals. My oh my god! Oh yeah. With the, the the Muslim math, I mean, it's so. like you sit down with. I, I sit down with a group of some of the smartest people I know, right. the writers, and we have this amazing cast, and we work to come up with some of the stupidest stuff in the world. <laughs> and then it's just like that sounds great. Let's America, let's do it. And then you just shake your head. And yeah. I guess that's why. It did have to end. <laughs> so why is obviously there's the obvious ways Trump makes it hard, right? He's he's so extreme. But are there other ways in which 
Trump being this larger than life figure makes it hard to write fiction about this moment? I, I think so, because discourse has sort of fallen away. And, and the way people communicate with one another is it, he's the, the, that landscape has been changed, not just by him, by the way, you know. I think we have a lot of folks to think, yeah. including Fox News. I mean, he, is a, he and, is a symptom or he's yes. part of the disease. But it's like so much of what the show was built on doesn't seem shocking. I mean, it's sort of what I was saying before. just doesn't seem shocking. The language doesn't really seem shocking. Or we had to push it so far that it got almost borderline crazy shocking. Yeah. And I, I guess that sort of – there's that concept of like – Maybe it's time for like another West Wing show, like something a little more yeah, inspirational. Based on kind the moon? Of... <laughs> where, based where, on what? Based in the moon. Where, where is it? <laughs> under, is it under the ocean? No, but yeah, I know. But it's that idea of like, maybe it's a small town politics show. Come on, let's beat this thing out. But you know what I mean? Come yeah. on. Um, but, it, you know, just in the sense of like, go the other way. It's like there's from something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because our horrible people... Watching our horrible people, I'm not. Sh- it stopped maybe being an escape from the real horrible people. I yeah. don't know. There's a there's a line in the last episode. I think you're talking to Marjorie or Catherine. You say, "Restore faith in democracy." We couldn't do that if we wanted to, and that <laughs> felt very real. Yeah. <laughs> that felt very meta, yeah. but very frustrated too. Yeah, deeply, like deeply. like, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. I can't take that on. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to ask. Did the, did the show and all the conversations you had with people like us who are in politics? Did it change your view of politics along the way? Have you taken any sort of lessons about real life politics with you after doing the show? Um, For me, it has um, for the good and the bad. Yeah, really. You know, I mean, it's it's awfully nice. What's on the good side of the ledger? On the good side of the ledger (laughs) is when you meet people who are earnestly trying to do the right thing. And we have come across those kinds of people. None of you, incidentally. <laughs> of course. Um, we, we some are, of the people you put us in meeting. contact with, though, were really great. We'll yeah. Names. So that is, and and you're and you are struck with the 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 actual work that's involved. You know, uh, the 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 minutia of the work. It's labor intensive. I don't have to tell you. You know, um, the uh, the part of it for me that's scary. Um, sort of like watching this Chernobyl show on HBO. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but oh my God. Anyway. It's really, it's really been heating up. <laughs> oh no. That's I've been doing a, this all day. You must the reviews, edit, the reviews edit are, that out. The reviews edit are, that out. The reviews have been glowing. <laughs> it's Again, that needs to be snipped out of the show. Um, but anyway. Um, is we have some alts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, I was um, blown, I've been blown away. That, the, that people are just human beings, simply just human beings and you think of them (laughs) as being it really shines a light on that i'd say but that that who are (laughs) capable of making um uh mistakes just like you and i would and that can be terrifying when uh so much is at stake yeah well that's that's about right i mean i don't know that's my little (laughs) summation did i get an a yes (laughs) i was just gonna say i don't know I, i guess having met some yeah some good people I don't know, but I, I'm not sure it restored my faith in the system, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like my own involvement, such as it is, has increased, like the desire to whether it's, you know, 
phone bank or donate or whatever when I find someone or something mm. that's worth doing like that desire is there maybe even more so than it was previously yeah. that 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 there that there is still a chance and that maybe it sometimes it's got to be you know whether it's like on the state house level or wherever it is oh, but that you is yeah so you know yeah. I found myself you know tweeting last night about Virginia state house in a way that I don't think I would have right. Pre-Veep. I mean, maybe. Who knows? But do you know what right. I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, but also because it's, it's you know, to use the Nixon phrase, now more than ever, because it's it couldn't be more important. It's not just the, the top of the ticket. There's so much at stake. So, you know. So I understand that this is apparently the 30th anniversary of Seinfeld is happening. Oh, yeah. I oh, guess yeah. so. I what month heard, is yes. this? May. Okay. So that shocked me because... What? But also, it was a long time. It, was a, it did not feel that long ago. But you've now been one of the great comedic actors for now. Multiple characters that have defined television comedy, defined roles for women. That's an incredible run. Incredible, amazing performances that like have stuck with so many people. What are you interested in doing next? Like, What is the next thing you want to take on? Well... I'll say two things. One, first of all, thank you very much. And and so three. Doesn't things. make up for the Chernobyl jokes, but thank yes. you. Nothing um, would. It's fine, <laughs> yeah. guys. It's going to be cut. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just yeah. you know what? Is you just cover I, it up. I, I have final cut on this whole thing, so don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll put a sarcophagus right over it. So, um, uh, keep it from getting out. Wait, can you repeat your question? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you are one of the most talented, <laughs> beautiful, intelligent. I, wanted, I don't care. I don't he didn't care say how beautiful. He didn't I, say beautiful. It's, I'm not allowed anymore. Even though I'm gay, I think I'm still not allowed. Radiant um, is the word you're Oh. So, uh, <laughs> it's a Chernobyl th- joke. <laughs> you see? Um, I, I need to take a little bit of a breather because we've been running, uh, you know, uh, uh, really, really hard for a number of years doing Veep and, and there's been a lot going on. And so I need to take a little break um, just to breathe and read or something. <laughs> I've heard books are good these days. But um, I, I, for me, it's just about finding material. And good material is not that easy to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit of a search, and um, and that good material would mean something maybe d- dramatically different than what I've been doing. So um, I don't know. Do you have anything? Because I'll do anything at this point. <laughs> I've, I've, I have some pictures. I mean, it's been like two weeks. She's going crazy. She is. It's like Seriously, guys. I'll learn to tap dance. Whatever you want. <laughs> I have got to perform again. <laughs> Well, you can always join us here on Pod Save America anytime. <laughs> um, thank you both for giving us oh, thank one you of the for greatest television so shows fun. of all time. Oh, it's really so nice for you to thank say you. thank you. It's such a it, treat to be it's here. It's a treasure. I'm amazed I made words come out of my mouth. I'm still freaking out. Oh, don't freak out. <laughs> and I'm never starstruck. I'm not. I mean, presidents, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I really don't. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I guys. met Obama. I was very starstruck by him, I have to say. The, he's the, cool. for, yeah, he's pretty cool. I met him a few times. I, know, I thought he was pretty <laughs> no cool. No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. Guys, we're good friends, and I've got a <laughs> cell phone number. Whatever. <laughs> Thank you to Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Dave Mandel for joining us today, and we will see you next week. Bye, everyone.
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.